0: Tanya Harrod is an independent historian of design and craft and one of the people that I mentioned who's been working on weaving and weavers for many, many years um, and who's produced extraordinary work. And her talk is called The Living Texture, British Women Weavers and Modern Textiles in the 1920s and 30s. Lovely. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. A great honour to be here. Very exciting. I get a plunge in. I've got rather a lot to cover. The hidden story of craft within design, architecture, and fine art modernism is now widely recognised. With, for example, ongoing re- re-readings of the work, of course, of Annie Albers, Le Corbusier, the Eameses, and post-war Italian design, all highlighting the relevance of craft, handwork, and the vernacular. So, although this talk is not about Annie Albers, I hope it enriches our understanding of the modernist textile. In 2014, I went back um, to work on British interwar women weavers, looking at one aspect of these women's professional lives, their travels out of England, undertaken in order to seek out vernacular techniques and materials. I argued that this going in search of both the pre and the left behind industrial was done with the serious purpose of creating living modern textiles, like the eight great banners (coughs) made by the weaver Elizabeth Peacock. This is a, a rare image of this somewhat shy, retiring figure. Here she is spinning. These banners, commissioned by Dorothy and Leonard Elmhurst were for the Great Hall at Dartington in Devon, where they still hang. And they represented the various departments of this potentially utopian community between the wars. Um, Here we see poultry, um, farming, and building. Each of these eight banners viewed individually can be identified as the largest abstract work of 3D art made in the UK during the 1930s. They each measure nearly eight feet by three and a half feet. So here we have modern art that was hand-woven using hand-spun, hand-dyed wool. This was what I came to feel was craft modernism. Just to make some general points before I turn to a focus on the spinner, dyer, weaver, teacher, and writer, Ethel Marais, who taught Elizabeth Peacock, uh, who made these marvelous banners, and many other key textile figures. To spin and dye and weave one's own yarns enabled these women to make cloth that was alive. Too much handling, too much technology could take the life out of raw materials, wool, cotton, and flax. But this anti-technology served modern purposes, as Herbert Reed recognized when he illustrated tweeds woven by schoolgirls under the direction of the weaver Ella MacLeod before the Second World War at Howells School, Denby. And he illustrated these in his second edition of his book Art and Industry of 1944. They appeared under the rubric, as we see here, the living texture of cloths which respect the nature of raw materials. Another example of this living cloth is a tweed woven by Elizabeth Peacock for a jacket designed by Schiaparelli illustrated in Vogue in 1933. Living cloth was sought far and wide, but in Britain it was found near to home in the surviving Welsh wool mills. The machinery in these remote water-powered mills, as Ethel Mary explained, dated for the most part from the last century, i.e. the 19th century, and is still of a very primitive type, needing a large amount of personal supervision. Here we see Mr. Davis of Newcastle Emlyn in Carmarthenshire. He's carding his own wool, And here, he's spinning using a hand-controlled mule. Ethel Mary's pupil, Marjorie Kendon, visiting his mill in 1934, noted what an interesting yarn Davis created as a result of this relatively hands-on technology. And here are some dress tweeds designed by Marjorie Kendon in 1932 when she worked with these Welsh weavers under the aegis of the Rural Industries Bureau. A name in this article in the DIA journal is rather characteristically misspelt, these are rather overlooked figures. Ethel Mary also admired Davis's yarns and used um, his yarns in the weft of this 1930s textile using Davis's natural gray, his indrath and dried yellow and black. Ethel Mary felt the future for modern cloth lay in these direct ways of working and the livelier results. Her friend and informal pupil, the young Swiss industrial designer, Marion Stroud, who made her career in England, agreed. In 1934 to 1937, she, like Marjorie Kendon, worked as a designer at the small Welsh mills, again for the Rural Industries Bureau, an unexpected area of modernist vernacular activity in Britain. And here is this great industrial designer spinning a prototype Welsh yarn, wearing a traditional madder-dried Welsh-dyed Welsh flannel apron. And here's a curtain material designed by Stroud, you see on the the right here, and woven in the Welsh mills in the Gordon Russell Furniture Workshop, um, Gordon Russell Furniture Showroom in London in 1936. Creating the future by looking back, conducting as it were a textile ethnography within Europe, took Elizabeth Peacock in 1939 to Southern Brittany, traveling with Ella MacLeod, whose teaching work we saw in Herbert Reed's Art and Industry. It was a visit that transformed Peacock's production of linen, and here's a woven sample by Peacock, using hand-spun flax bought from Breton weavers, lustrous and alive. There were multiple epiphanies. Macedonian embroidery, seen in Belgrade in the early 20s, turned the sculptor Jean Mill into a textile artist, a maker of tapestry or discontinuous weft rugs, that she did not pre-plan, but made as she saw it spontaneously. These are both in the V&A, and and i am sorry not to have a color image. Britain was still a great wool producer, and the raw material of wool from different British breeds was much investigated by Ethel Mary, Marjorie Kendon, and Elizabeth Peacock, in a spirit that was lyrical and a touch nationalistic. Indeed, Marjorie Kendon, now utterly forgotten, was described as the Cecil Sharp of textiles, by her friend, the artist, Thomas Hennell. Because of her research into types of fleece, aside from knowing the taxonomies of British fleeces, Marjorie Kendon found visits outside England, key sources of inspiration, and she studied old techniques seen in Ireland, Wales, and Scandinavia. This is a little moth-eaten red jacket woven by this forgotten woman. And here, some words, of her account of a journey around County Mayo in the Republic of Ireland in 1935, which she typed up. But what drew these women to travels in search of archaic technique and material? The interest was practical, but also existential. The chance to witness ways of working not governed by advanced capitalism, and which operated outside the industri- uh, uh, operated outside industrial time. Of all the women I've mentioned so far, Ethel Mary is perhaps the best documented archivally. Here she is at Broad Camden in Gloucestershire in 1909, the house built for her and her husband by C.R. Ashby, and here around 1912 with her second husband on the left, (coughs) Philip Mary, an actor and man of letters. On the right, her brother, the craftsman Fred Partridge. She's been the subject of two biographical counts, principally a published one by Margot Coates, but little has been done to place Mary in a wider context, the context she in fact deserved. As a craftswoman, she's been excluded from art historical writing, and as a hand loom weaver, despite being the first woman royal designer for industry, from design history studies also. There are signs of change. Antonia Bien's Bard Graduate Center doctoral thesis, The Brain of the Machine, Ethel Mary's textile laboratory is in preparation, and appears promisingly to build on the idea of a British craft-based modernism, which I tried to set out in my 1999 book, The Crafts in Britain in the 20th Century. Behan argues that Mary was unique amongst female textile workers for, 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 for participating in theoretical design debates, publishing books and pamphlets from 1916 onwards, culminating in her most important book, Hand Today, Traditions and Changes of 1939. Great book. Mary's career falls into two parts, the first within the late arts and crafts movement. She was born in 1872, but she was unusual in that her first marriage in 1902 was a mixed-race marriage to the Sri Lankan intellectual Ananda Kumaraswamy, pictured here in India in 1909. And this marriage gave her direct insight into empire its ruthless export economy and its undermining of local crafts. This became vividly apparent when the couple lived in Ceylon, Sri Lanka, during 1903 to 1906. In Ceylon, Ananda Kumara Swami worked on a geological survey, but as a side pursuit, they worked together on a study of medieval Sinhalese art, ultimately published from their house in Broad Camden in 1908 under the Essex House imprint. The book was pioneering in its ethno historical approach that recorded surviving crafts like these Selenese map (laughs) makers photographed by Ethel Mary. It was rich in oral history and it was in effect an attack on the malign effects of British rule with elegiac accounts of Candian arts, crafts, and social structures up until the 18th century. Ethel Mary's first marriage ended in 1910 and in 1912 she set up her first weaving workshop. Moving in 1919, to the house she designed in Ditchling, Sussex, which she named Gospels. Inspired by so-called local Sussex vernacular, it had, as you can see here, a double height weaving room and became an informal weaving school. But as this building suggests, she necessarily operated on a small scale. In an early leaflet on vegetable dyes, Mary noted, a sort of fear or nervousness about bright colors is one of the great features of our age. Colour survived in the peasant societies of Europe, but also, she argued, in the art of the Italian futurists. The pre-modern and the modern were always braided for her. Mary's early weaving was characterised by colour and yarn (coughs) texture rather than by complex weave structures. Here's an example of her early work of the 20s, hand-spun, vegetable-dyed, airy silk, plain weave with some crammed weft stripes. And here... Samples showing her use of madder roots as a dye from one of her educational scrapbooks now in Ditchley Museum. This beret made from offcuts from the workshop is emblematic of the bold new kind of life and dress offered at Gospels in the 20s. Likewise, this jacket, hand spun vegetable dyed, airy silk, plain weave, non-repeating stripes with bound indigo, bound indigo edges. As Marshall Berman pointed out years ago, to be modern is often to be anti-modern. And Ethel Mary, like the writer Rebecca West, saw a better society in the Balkans, specifically in what was then the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. They all, they seem to have all the essentials a great people should have, she wrote to the Serbian mystic Dmitri Matin- in two thousand in, ni- in 1927. In 1927 and 30, in Yugoslavia, she saw men and women in homespun, hand-dyed, embroidered dress, all the work of women. One knows what women are when you have seen them here, she wrote. In 1927, on the way to Trebinje, near Dubrovnik, now in Bosnia, Herzegovina, she glimpsed an elemental sight, a woman spinning with spindle and distaff as she walked to market. Something like this photograph of three Croatian women knitting and spinning on the move from Frederick Bailey's The Slavs of the War Zone, published in 1916. And here are some images of the types of things she was drawn to Bosnian women wearing complex costumes with the carpet aprons that she much admired. A typical bag and a humble goat's hair flower or potato sack with the occasional woven band of colour. And here, Belts from Mary's collection from Macedonia, extraordinarily finely woven examples of tapestry technique, prime illustrations of the difference between domestic time and industrial time that struck all visitors confronted by folk textiles in the region between the wars. Mary later reflected that the Macedonian belts were unequal in beauty and delicacy of weaving in all patent work in Europe and possibly in the world. Nonetheless, Mary has, had always sought a modernist context for her deep study of weaving. In Britain, she found few allies for the kind of ambitious teaching institution she had in mind from the mid-30s. Figures in the craft world disliked her European notions. The textile manufacturer, Sir James Morton, was similarly dismissive. Crucial was her friendship with Marion Straub, who we saw spinning Welsh wool earlier, who'd come to Britain from Switzerland in 1932 to study at Bradford Technical College, but who had previously been taught by Bauhaus trained Heinz Otto Hurleman in Zurich. Their gifts were complimentary. Straub appreciated Mary's deep understanding of color and yarns, while Mary admired the more complex weave structures that Straub was able to introduce to the workshop at Gospels. And here are weaves of the 1930s with experimental wefts, a regular spacing of warp threads, or pulled up warp threads you see on the Textile here and here. And the introduction of double cloths. And here in the late 30s, a room divider made of natural linen, cellophane, and back cotton with warp and weft stripes. By the mid-30s, gospel was an international hub for weavers, as this touching little page of photographs from (coughs) Mary's photo album makes clear, with pupils from Norway, Sweden, Germany, and Switzerland. There you see Marion Straub in her swimsuit, Um, (coughs) pictured in the mid-30s. Mary had been looking for textile avant-garde from the start. In 1929, taking an interest in the remarkable experimental dress textiles, both woven and knitted, designed by the firm Rodier, the French firm Rodier, produced in short runs on hand looms in small villages in Picardy. This is a page from uh, Mary's scrapbook of examples. In 1932, she visited Denmark, buying an eight-shaft Danish loom, impressed by the modern hand weaving there. And in 1933, she was back there and then on to Finland, where she admired Sarinen's railway station in Helsinki. And in in Sweden, where she saw the work of the great weaver, Elsa Gulberg, who produced hand-woven relief pile rugs like these and um, hand-woven prototypes for industry. In 1936, she returned to Finland with Marion Straub, seeing the work of another great experimental weaver, Greta Scholster, here samples kept by Mary. She also met the architect Alva Aalto, a very real person, the best type of craftsman. Modernist architecture came to, see a key, came to seem a key context for her work. Mary's lectures chart her allegiances. In a talk given in Copenhagen in 1932, she outlined four exemplary schools of weaving in Europe. Sweden, which she believed influenced Denmark, Germany, (coughs) Switzerland, and Holland with a technical understanding of the hand loom. France in the form of Rodier's Picardy hand weavers. Yugoslavia as the best peasant weaving in Europe. And England in the process of forming a new tradition, presumably led by Mary herself. In May 1934 on a visit to London before leaving Germany for good in October 1934, the former director of the Bauhaus, Walter Gropius, read a paper to the Design and Industries Association that argued that Handcraft's role in research work was in research work for industrial production, dismissing the dilettante handicraft spirit. His words, printed almost immediately in the RIBA journal, were instantly taken up by Mary as they were by Herbert Reed, who put modern movement architecture at the heart of a talk given a month later in June, along with new music and new textile materials. Here she mentions the Bauhaus for the first time, offering it as a modern art school that showed, I quote, in a very clear light, that the crafts arts and industry are very interrelated and cannot work separately from each (coughs) other. She went on as usual to praise Rodier in France, Elsa Gulberg in Sweden, and to criticise the bad teaching in British art schools. In June 1935, she appears alongside Nicholas Pevsner in the DIA magazine Design for Today in a special feature on design and the artist's craftsman, praising Gulberg and Rodier and above all the Bauhaus. This is the page, these illustrations are in fact the ones chosen by Pevsner for his article. Uh, an interesting, much younger weaver called Thea Mormon. We can't go into her activities here. Um, So she lists the names of uh, the teachers at the Bauhaus, uh, above all, perhaps, the the weaver, Gunther Sturzel. On this page of her article, we see weavings uh, by Thea Mormon um, picked out by Pevsner in his contribution to the design-craft debate. Mary made her own way and found her own modernist sources in Europe both vernacular and contemporary. But after 1934, the Bauhaus legacy was very much in her thoughts. In 1937, she's reading Moholy Nage's The New Vision, telling Marion Stroud, you must read it, and is corresponding with Gunther Stotzel, asking her for an account of weaving in the Bauhaus, at the Bauhaus, which Mary translates and later includes in her book, Hand Weaving Today. She also meets Walter Gropius for two hours of solid, fundamental talk, probably in 1936, finding him, she tells Bernard Leach, a very real person that I have the greatest admiration for, grieving that he will leave England for the USA in March 37, and always recalling his advice on how to set up her own Bauhaus for weaving. Don't destroy what you have, but work through the conditions that exist. In June 1938, Ethel Mare and Marion Straub went to Germany and Switzerland, where in Berlin, Mary is naively appreciative of the Nazi international craft show, the Erste Inter- Internationale Handwerks-Ausstellung. She's captivated by the mass of vernacular weaving from Germany, Lithuania, Japan, Bulgaria, Poland, Latvia, and Bolivia. <coughs> this is a, a Bavarian room setting for this exhibition. This distinctly sinister endorsement of craft in Berlin in 1938, personally supported by Hitler, deserves further research. On the same visit, Mary meets Margaret Leischner, still in Germany, but who comes to Britain in that year. She was then the textile designer for the Deutsche Werkstätte. Later in in the UK, a distinguished industrial textile designer and the head of weaving at the Royal College of Art. Art. Her lino fabric had featured on the cover of the July 1931 issue of the Bauhaus magazine. A clever weaver who trained with Otti Berger and Gutter Stolzl Marais notes, But but who knows nothing, she writes, about actual materials. This is a revealing odd observation, suggesting that Mary's belief in starting from the ground up with spinning as a bedrock sets her to an extent apart from the Bauhaus Weavers. As Gunther Stolzel explains in her article on the Bauhaus written for Mary in 1937, great attention was paid to the qualities of yarns at the Bauhaus, as this image of Lieschner's work suggests. But for Mary, spinning was central to good practice. Mary and Straub then move on to Switzerland, Straub's homeland, where she meets Straub's teacher, Heinz Otto Hurlimann, then in partnership with Gunther Stolzel, then, then working under her married name, Sharon. Mary notes Stolzel's uh, splendid use of colour, suggestive of the paintings of Paul Clay. Mary also pursues an interest shared with Bauhaus weavers in pre Columbian weaving. In Berlin, she met Kurt Henschel, a specialist on ancient Peruvian Peruvian weaving, and in Switzerland, Fritz Ickel, the great collector of Peruvian textiles, who gives Mary small pieces and spindles from his collection. Stolze herself appears to have given Mary snippets of her weaves, like this double-sided weave we see here on the right, grouped with other examples of Swiss weaving. Mary also returns with images of Stolze's cellophane curtains for the, the uh, urban cinema in Zurich. Um, she actually had rather good photographs, which I'm afraid I haven't got um, an image of. I've taken this off the internet, so you don't get much of an idea. In December 1939, war having broken out, um, Mary is busy translating some of the Bauhaus material given to her by, by Scholz. Um, she's actually translating Otti Berger's remarkable essay Stoff im Raum*, asking Straub for advice on technical terms. Uh, I think we'll learn more about Otti Berger's tragic life tomorrow. Inspired by Grapius, Maria reverted to planning a more formal school for weavers, an idea she'd had since 1933. This was the Ditchling Weaving School, offering two years at Ditchling, a year at a technical college, and another year abroad in Switzerland, Denmark, or Germany. The war put an end to that hopeful project. But Mary's reputation was high when peace came. She was then 73 years old. An article on woven textiles in the Design Review section of the Architectural Review in March 1946 can be seen as an endorsement of her work, illustrating it and that of Margaret Leishner, noting that Mary turns to hand-weaving not for the purpose of machine boycott, but for the sake of machine mastery, and observing that many of her... pupils are now working in the industry. But despite all these links and ambitions and her publications, Mary, who died in 1952, is not much known outside the craft world, has not been drawn into the international story of modernist weaving that we're celebrating today with a focus on Annie Albers. To end, autonomous textiles (coughs) of the kind Albers produced can be experienced as works of art. Bolts and samples of cloth Intended for functional uses while working radically with yarns, colors, and weave structures belong in the world of design. Although much admired in Japan, Ethel Mary found little encouragement in Britain within the worlds of modern British craft, art, or the industrial establishment between the wars as she embraced European modernism. She was out of step generationally, perhaps, 25 years older than Gunther Schotzel. Uh, 10 years older than Grapius, 37 years older than Marion Straub. She had no institutional backing, being touchingly pleased when art students came to visit her, or when she was given teaching at Brighton College of Art. And she was a woman, a woman alone after her marriage with Philip Mary ended in 1930, maybe a woman out of time whose remarkable achievements deserve recalibrating. Her dream of her textiles in buildings of concrete and steel may not have materialized, but were realized strikingly by another of her pupils, another forgotten figure, Hilary Bourne. Hilary Bourne's extensive work for the South Bank Royal Festival Hall in 1951, completed the year before Mary died, included wall coverings for the boxes in the auditorium, a cellulose wall covering for the South Bank Cinema, and these red madder, indigo blue, weld yellow, and blackberry leaf dyed grey reversible curtains, now long gone. Long, long gone, as seen in a photograph in the June <coughs> number of the Architectural Review, 1951. And here we see these reversible curtains in place in the festival hall. So here we end, really. Modernism <coughs> and vegetable dyes, the new and the archaic, braided together. Thank you.